Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome back to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm so excited today to introduce to you Tom Singer, who is a fellow podcaster, and he's such a good speaker, I'm going to have him introduce himself. (laughs) Hi, Heidi. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So yeah, my name is Tom Singer, and I host a podcast called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. It's been around for about three and a half years, over 350 episodes. This year, Inc.com named it one of eight podcasts for entrepreneurs to listen to. And my listenership, apparently people read Inc.com because it just started soaring at that time. So that's pretty cool. And then I make my living as a professional speaker. And I know that sounds weird or different. And a lot of people nowadays who you meet call themselves like internationally renowned speakers. Uh, I don't know if I'm renowned and I rarely speak out of the United States, but I do make all of my income which is a decent income by you know regular standards, by giving speeches at corporations and associations. So when people say that they're a speaker, you know sometimes they speak two or three times a year and they have income coming from something else. My only income is I get up in front of audiences and I talk to them about how to get across the gap from potential to results and then also how to connect better with people in a world where everybody's on their phone. So those are the two topics that I've been doing now for, gosh, almost a decade. That's pretty awesome. I think there's a lot of people that would love to learn a little bit more about how you make that happen. And, you know, particularly with connecting the piece of, you know, podcasts, which has become just a new world for and a new channel for a lot of us to be able to get out our message. Thank goodness to technology. It brings it, you know, right into our pockets. So how did you get started in this space? So I was a salesperson first, and then I sort of morphed into becoming a marketing person. And through just through my network and through other things, I ended up becoming the marketing director for the Texas offices of a large national law firm. And that firm, they liked me because I had been a salesperson. I was really engaged in the community, and the managing partner hired me because of that. He said, look, the lawyers stink. They're great lawyers but they stink at building business relationships. You're really good at it. Part of your job is going to be to teach the lawyers how to do this. So he made me put on a class and he made it mandatory for all the lawyers. And I thought, oh, they're going to fire me. I'd worked there about a month. I thought no one's going to want to give me 90 minutes to go to the conference room and listen to me talk about networking skills. But it was mandatory and a lot of people groused. And you know, some people, the partner they worked for, let them out of it. We had to do it. But to fit everybody, we did a morning session and afternoon session. The good news was is after the morning session, the afternoon session filled because everybody was like they'd heard it was good. The way I kind of got into speaking was after that first session, one of the partners raised his hand and he said, literally when I called on him, he goes, I have a complaint about this. And I had worked there a month and I thought, really? We just do the complaining in front of the whole firm? Oh, okay. I said, okay, Ronnie, what's your complaint? And he said, this is the best non-legal training I've ever been to in 15 years as an attorney. You need to keep doing these classes. And so part of my job morphed into speaking all over the country for the law firm and eventually for their clients on how to do business development and how to engage with people. And people started after a year or two saying, why do you work for us? Why don't you just go do that? And I said, I don't don't think you can if you're not famous. I don't think you can if you haven't written a book. And one person said, uh, one of the partners in the Washington, D.C. office of the firm said, yeah, there's a thing called the National Speakers Association. I think you should look into it. And it took me several years to get there, but that's how it all sort of began is it was part of my job and it turned out I was, I was okay at it. 
Well, sounds like you were more than okay at it. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for that because, you know, I think fortunately for us in the U.S., we are put on the spot and forced to go out and speak in front of our classes and things like that. But for a lot of cultures, that is something extremely foreign and not so easy to do. Even in our culture, most people don't want to do it. I talk to people all the time who are like, you can have that job. You know, <laughs> I would never. My, my own wife is like, never. I will never fill in for you. So don't ever think that if you're sick, I can go because she does not. That's not her thing. And I talk to people all the time. In fact, I coach executives who have to start speaking as part of their job. You know, they'll hire me to help work them through it because they're petrified. These are people making a half million or a million dollars a year and they have to start speaking because they have to go on a road show or for whatever reason. And they don't have any self-confidence to get up on stage and do it. And I tell people all the time, it is a learned skill. And anybody, I don't know that everybody can be great, but everybody can be good at giving a speech, but it really takes a commitment to learning how to do that. Do you find because it's, you know, obviously the, the way that we present and the opportunities and channels that we present on or, or speak on these days, what kinds of technology do you think actually supports that and what kinds of things maybe make that more challenging? Well, technology has been a huge part of my portion of the speaking business. I've been doing this full time for nine years, almost 10 years. And that sort of, if you look back, that's about when the technical age really has come on. So there's, there's certain things. Certainly the use of visual aids have changed. I don't have a memory. I mean, not as a full time speaker, certainly as a business person before that, of using an overhead projector and like slicks. I remember being younger and having to present my company and having like plastic, clear plastic with stuff. But as far as my speaking career, PowerPoint has always been the norm. And so what's come on with your ability to engage an audience through the use of visual aids and being able to have things that uh, you can do with that is great. The other thing is the marketing side of it. I mean, without my website and without, you know, the ability to email and to do the digital marketing things that I do you know, this business was a whole different world. Now, the downside to that is, is there is no barrier to entry. I see people all the time who call themselves speakers. I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was somebody who I kind of knew and we had had a conversation about the fact that she wasn't that good of a speaker and she wanted to be. And we, we just had a, a human connection about it. And then I heard her interviewed and part of her intro was that she was this internationally renowned speaker. And I thought, wait a minute, she's told me that's not what she does. And so I sort of asked her about it. And she said, well, I put that in for PR purposes because it makes me sound like more of an expert. And I, you know, people can say whatever they want. But the reality is, is that I think that that cheapens it for the rest of us that everybody suddenly is a speaker and everybody can call themselves that and everybody has a speaking website. So, you know, I don't mean to be critical of other people because I think everybody can do whatever they need to do. But when I started in this business, if you were calling yourself a professional speaker, pretty much people wanted to know that you were actually making money doing it. So I think technology makes the barrier to entry go away and everybody can play in everybody's industry, which may or may not be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the other piece is some people maybe are more comfortable speaking in a remote setting and they're great at that, but you put them in front of a, on a stage in front of an audience and it's a whole different speaking experience. Yeah, but again, like I said earlier, I think everybody can learn if they want to. I think everybody can learn to improve their speaking skills, just like remotely being on a podcast. I've done 350 plus episodes of my show. If you go back and listen to the first one, or even my being a guest, I mean, I don't even remember the first time I was a guest on a podcast, but maybe eight or nine years ago, I'm sure I sound like an idiot. I mean, 
I might sound like an idiot right now, but at least I'm comfortable doing it. <laughs> well, and, and the comfort is a really important piece. And I think something that, you know, is not to be downplayed is when you get more comfortable with presenting whatever it is that you're presenting, but also just comfortable in your own skin. And maybe some of that comes with training, but maybe some of that just comes with age and experience. <laughs> well, then I'm starting to get really good because the age and experience are starting to add up on me. But I do think that a combination of being intentional, I think, is is the key to being a good presenter, whether it's in front of an audience or whether it's via a podcast or even if it's being a writer or other ways that you communicate. It's the definitely the more you do it, the better you're going to get. And if you're intentional about improving every single time, I think that that really, really does make a huge difference. So when I'm on stage, I don't use a lot of technology other than my PowerPoint. However, I do audio and videotape myself all the time and use that technology as my own personal university. And sometimes, you know, my wife or my kids will mock me going, are you watching yourself speak again? Like it's some ego thing. But really, I'm looking at the screen thinking, smile. What you said was funny. Pause. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's an amazing tool. I remember back in my years of doing ski racing, that was such an important tool to be able to watch yourself and go, okay, that's why I really struggled at that turn. So, you know? so were you a, were you a competitive ski racer? I, I just, I mean, I did in college and in high school, but. That's awesome. We could turn this interview around on you and talk about that. I would imagine that would be a cool, <laughs> I would imagine I that would that be a cool good. thing to have learned from. I imagine you learn a lot. What type of skiing did you do? I was doing uh, GS and slalom, giant slalom yeah. and, and slalom. That's awesome. Yeah, it well, was, I'll, I'll give you your show back. I'll stop interviewing. <laughs> That's okay. No, it is. It you know, there's so many different things that through the course of my life have really you know that were sort of maybe non sequiturs, but I learned other things about them. And and you know, I taught skiing for years, and that was really an amazing experience for me in understanding how people learn. And you would think that that was a you know. Well, okay, you know, it was just being out in the sunshine. and But I would say that it really has a huge impact on the way that I teach now and everything else in the corporate environment because you really have to take into account that people's different learning styles. And so you can't just deliver things on paper. You can't just deliver things over audio, et cetera. And that's really true for what I do for a living. It's You can't just get up and give the same speech to every audience. I mean, if I have a 1,000 people in the audience, it's a lot different than if there's 24 people. If I have you know people from different careers or different genders or different age areas, all of that has to be taken into effect every time that, that I take the stage. I have to think about who is the audience and how do they learn. And that's, that's actually part of my day-to-day -day life. Absolutely. As a, a speaker myself, several times I've had the experience of, you know, depending on where you're at, the, you know, you've got the whole setup and you get up there and you're counting and using your PowerPoint. And for some reason, the technology doesn't work. Do you have any insight and learnings that you can share with other people who are trying to take on, you know, more speaking or learning more about speaking, about how to handle that kind of situation or any funny stories that you might be able to share about that? Well, I think the first thing to remember is, is that you're a speaker, you're not a video disc jockey. So sometimes I see people who a lot of their speeches are the videos that they show. I watched one woman who was an adventurer give a 45-minute keynote and 25 minutes of it or 20 minutes of it, half were clips of her on her adventures and things that were, I mean, they were legit. They were credibility tools. They were filmed by like NBC News and things like that. However, she was hired to be a speaker. And actually the meeting planner was like, we could have just showed the video. So 
don't rely so much on whatever it is, whether it's a slide or a picture. I mean, I, I love my PowerPoint and they're there to trigger emotions, but I'm a storyteller. So if you strip away my technology, I can keep going. And that happened to me once a couple of years ago. I was speaking to a group of about 300 of the top real estate agents in the United States. And we were in an old, like a historic hotel. And the ballroom had a full roll of windows. So when the power went out in the hotel, because something that a construction crew hit a cord or a, a, what do you call it, a wire, you could feel it was one of these old hotels. You could just feel all the generators. Everything just went wah, 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 as my PowerPoint shut off and all the lights in the room shut off. And I was in the middle of a story. So I sort of, with my eyes, looked around and acknowledged what was happening, but I finished that story. And then by the time I finished the story, everybody realized it was a small enough room that when my microphone went out, they could still hear me. I just kept going. And I no longer had the PowerPoint, which was really my notes. And so I went forward with essentially everything I could remember, but I, I went off script. I, I know, you know, I know what I teach. I just don't necessarily always know the order because it changes based on the audience and the customization that I did. And it was about an hour long speech and the power went out at about the 20 minute mark. And at about a half hour after that, 10 minutes to go, just before I got into the conclusion of my speech, I could feel the hotel once again go, and of course the PowerPoint didn't come up again because it had to reboot, but the lights came on, the you could feel the, the power in the hotel, and it was right as I finished something, and I looked at the audience, and I just stopped talking, and I looked at them, and I paused, and I said, you know, a great presenter illuminates their audience, and the room busted up laughing. Huge thing of applause. I went into the conclusion and it might have been the best reaction I've ever had from an audience in 700 professional level speeches. And afterwards, I remember a gentleman came up to me and he asked me, do you have something stored in your head for whatever goes wrong? And I didn't understand the question. He goes, that thing about a great speaker illuminates the audience seconds after the lights come on. That was really funny. Do you have something like a funny line if a waiter drops a tray or if a group of people stand up and leave? And I was like, oh, God, no, you, you, couldn't, you, you couldn't know all the things that are going to be said. You just couldn't know. And he goes, well, how did you do that? And at the time, I'd given like 400 or 500 speeches. And I said, it's because I've been on stage 500 times, and my speech is not my PowerPoint. So once my PowerPoint went down, I had to just go forward and continue to have fun with that audience. And it made a difference to that group because what a lot of people – would have done, they would have made a big deal about, well, the power's gone out. Should we go on? Should we not go on? I had the opinion. I had the feeling that we were safe. I didn't feel like the world was ending and I just didn't draw a lot of attention to it. But once the lights came on, it was necessary to point out that, Hey, the lights are back on. And, you know, I made a joke out of it, but I, I think that's the thing you have to remember is if you're so married to the technology that if the technology goes down, it's going to ruin you, throw you off, and steal the presentation of information and learning from that audience, then I don't think you should be speaking. Yeah, such a good point. And to your point, I think, you know, you said that was probably one of your best speeches. I had a similar type thing happen when I was speaking in Beijing probably eight years ago. And Everybody told me afterwards they thought that was the best presentation that they had seen. And I, it was because I totally had to wing it. And, and it was just natural and comfortable. And I just I had to go with what I knew rather than, you know, following the notes of my slides. And yeah, I think I think that technology is our friend as presenters. 
But too many people are relying on that technology, be it the PowerPoint, the video, some other sort of, of buzzwinkle thing. And at the end of the day, to really remember that the audience is what it's about. It's not about the technology. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the people connection and such a, a, a beautiful thing when that connection happens. So if you, you got to look up to, to see it. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick pause to have a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Oscar Wellness. When pain stops, life begins. Oscar Pulse mimics the body's own recovery processes to relieve pain, muscle stiffness, and inflammation using optimized pulsed electromagnetic field technology, PEMF, to encourage recovery at a cellular level so you can get back to life. And I gotta tell you, this thing works so well, my husband and I are fighting over it. So I highly recommend you take a moment and try it out. They have all kinds of options for checking it out, and they've even given us an opportunity to share a discount with you, $55, by using the 2BU code on the Oscar Wellness site. You can check out the show notes to get more details. And we're back with Tom Singer on the Evolving Digital Self, and we're talking about sort of the, the world of speaking and podcasting and how technology impacts our world, but I would like to take a little switch and turn here and hear a little bit more about you, Tom, and how technology fits into your life. So, you know, I sort of fall into the middle, right? I mean, even if you just look at the generations that we're constantly talking about in, in the news, you know, the, the news media loves to talk about the baby boomers and the millennials and how they're pitted against each other. There was a big article that came out this week that said the millennials blame the baby boomers for everything bad in their life and all this stuff. Well, I fall in the middle. We forget that there's a whole generation sandwiched between them. I mean, granted, it's a much smaller generation, but the generation Xers in the middle. And those of us in the middle, we didn't grow up with the technology. I mean, I went to high school in the eighties and college in the eighties. I remember one guy in my fraternity house out of, I don't know, we had like 40 people who lived in one guy had a computer in the house, you know, but in college we learned them, you know, I didn't have a major where I had to take a computer course, but I, I learned how to operate a computer and every job I've had since technology has come in farther and farther. But sometimes I'm, I'm still the person who, who is happy to put my phone down for several hours, you know, so I don't have to be constantly connected to the technology. And I think that's kind of a blessing to be, have feet in both worlds. I can use the technology. I cannot use the technology, but I'm an addict to my iPhone. I mean, how does, how does technology fit into my life? You know, I love the social media. I love the connection. Just this week, I connected with someone I hadn't talked to in 30 years. I, I thought about him randomly, and it wasn't even like we were great friends. We played Little League together, and I think he was two years older than me, but he was always nice to me. You know, the older kids weren't always nice. He was always nice to me. So I looked him up on Facebook and, or LinkedIn and just sent him a LinkedIn connection and just said, for some reason, I thought of you, and you were always nice to me. So I thought I'd just reach out and say, hey, I hope the last 30 years treated you well. We exchanged a few niceties. It's not like, you know, he's hiring me or anything, but... I couldn't have done that without technology. And I do that all the time. I'll reach out to people who cross my mind. Even if we're connected, I'll send a note saying, Heidi, I thought of you today. I hope everything's going well. So I think that that as a, as a social being, I think the technology is, is fantastic. And we talked a little bit about podcasts. You know, as a speaker, when I started in this business, having a book was desperately important. The power of the book to speakers as a credibility tool has diminished because Heidi, you and I could come up with a topic for a book right now 
we could write it before the end of the day. We don't even have to have it edited and we could have it on CreateSpace done and available on Amazon by midnight. And so everybody knows that everybody can write a book. So the power of saying, oh, I've written a book isn't what it was a decade ago. However, my podcast has that level of credibility. Now, it's not the fact that I have one and it's not even the fact that Inc. wrote about it. The thing that's really a credibility tool is that I've been doing it for three and a half years and have 350 episodes. I have that as part of my introduction as a speaker. And without technology, we don't have podcasts. I mean, this is a byproduct of our connected world. But they read off all these things. Oh, he's written books. He's done this. He blah, 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 bullshit, 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 bullshit. And then he has this podcast, 350 episodes, three years. People come up to me after my speech. And by the way, entrepreneurship isn't what I talk about directly. And it's the title of my podcast. People line up with their phone in their hands. Usually, you know, people in their 50s or 60s with their phone in their hands going, I've never subscribed to a podcast. I want to subscribe to yours. Show me how to get it. And it's the biggest credibility tool. It's one of the best networking tools. I've connected with all kinds of great podcasters like yourself. Uh, people I've interviewed have become friends over the years and we keep in touch. So I, I think that we can't run. I, I live in the middle. We can't run away from technology. And then the flip side of that is, but I don't think we can run to it that it answers all questions. I mean, I could get into this whole, how does, you know, technology affect networking and, and you'll hit a hot button with me and we could do six shows. <laughs> well, well said. And I think actually one of the things we talked about in the green room beforehand is we share in that we both have uh, 16 year olds and, you know, and I am also an Xer. And I think that there's this amazing experience of watching the people that are digital natives. And for those of us that were not digital natives, I was one of those, I was that geeky person that did have the computer, even though nobody else had one. They were like, why do you want that thing? It's, you know, big and ugly and why, you know, it's totally useless, you know, dot matrix printer and all. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I was the ultimate geek, but you know, at the same time, it's such an, a wonderful bridge to, you know, I just got back from being out in nature in Joshua Tree National Park and was able to take all these great photos because of the quality of the camera on my iPhone. I was able to take these amazing photos and play with my, you know, teenager taking cool photos and doing fun things with them and sharing them with our friends and family that weren't able to be present and then, you know, including my aging parents, one who was, a, you know, a shut-in. And so to this bridge that that technology creates that, you know, opens up, whether it's reaching out to a little leaguer or to, you know, a senior or a younger person. Yeah, it's wonderful. I just got back from four days in Yosemite with my 16-year-old. We do, we do a thing when the kids are 13 years old, they get to plan a trip anywhere in the United States with mom. And when they're 16-year-olds, they get to plan it with dad. And this was the last kid, the last trip. It was with me. We've always gone to cities with even this kid, but the other kid as well. And she announced we were going to Yosemite. And I literally looked at her and said, you said Boston? Is that is that right? Because I'm not the most outdoorsy guy. But she and I agreed that if we were going to go to the outdoors, we weren't going to worry about our phones. And we had them with us. And when we would get service, we would check. We kind of also were, we weren't going to abandon technology. But we didn't need it, except for the one point where we were sort of intentionally separated. There's a swank restaurant in the middle of Yosemite at the formerly called the Awani Hotel. It's now called the Majestic. There's a famous dining room, and you have to make reservations like four months in advance. And I got dinner, and it's expensive, and I got dinner reservations for her and I, but I hadn't needed my wallet the whole time. And we literally were taking the bus. We were staying in like tent cabins on the other side of, of the valley. 
we were taking the little shuttle bus that they have. And I realized I didn't have my wallet. So I jumped off and like walked a mile back, but she was in dress boots. And I said, why don't you just go on to the hotel? She's 16. And I go and hang out. And I go, in fact, go around in the meadow and look for bears, you know, do what it was. She wanted to see a bear. And uh, I said, go outside. Well, by the time I got back to the hotel, I couldn't find her. And at that point, neither one of us could get service. The hotel had spotty service. And then she was out in the meadow and it was getting close to our dinner reservation. And that was the one time when I was like, no, technology has to work at all times, everywhere. Other than that, we didn't care about service, you know, at all. And of course, by the time I reached her, she was walking back into the hotel. I mean, she's 16. She knew we had seven o'clock dinner reservations. So at like 10 till she was coming back. But um, that was the only time for the whole four days that we cared if we had technology. But you're right about the camera. I mean, I've got about 100 pictures of Yosemite that would make Ansel Adams cry. They're so beautiful. Yeah, it's it's quite spectacular. The power of the cameras within those little devices that we have these days. It's so true. It's, you know, it's we don't think about it until we need it. Right. right. And, yeah, and, we, and I needed it because it was like, hey, you got to be back here. Where are you? And I just couldn't get a service. And when I did get it to go, she wasn't getting the texts and we laughed about the fact that, oh, sure, we, you know, we can be up at the waterfall and we can have full service, but at the hotel, we can't. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and the whole, like, I don't know how much you've used uh, Find My Friends or any of the tracking tools like that, but those have been a huge gift for, you know, for our family because now, uh, I don't know about your 16-year-old, but mine's driving and I want to be able to know, did he make it to his destination? Because he's not always that great about checking in and saying, I arrived. So we've actually made the decision not to do that. My older child did not, not like the idea of being tracked. And this was a straight A student who was bound for an Ivy League level school. She just didn't like the idea of it. And, and my wife thought she should be tracked. And I made a deal with her. I said, look, as long as you never cross the line, as long as we can always reach you, then we don't track you. And so we haven't actually, I have other friends who their whole family is on it and stuff like that. And I think if you choose to use that, it's great. I just have sort of taken the attitude that, you know, nobody needs to know exactly where I am. So we don't use that particular feature. but. Uh, I, you know, as a parent, there's a part of me who thinks we should just chip them and know where they are at all times. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we've considered that. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but at the same time, I, again, you know, talking about the cross-generation piece, um, my mother is, I have her on Find My Friends and she lives by herself and she's very capable and, you know, not to worry. She's in her late seventies, but you never know when something's going to happen. So, She's actually said that she feels good, even though she's across the country, she feels better knowing that I know where she is. Yeah, no, and all, like I said, all of this technology makes, makes total sense. And I'm, I'm a big fan, but every now and then I like to zig when everybody else zags. Oh yeah. Well, amen to that. Amen to zagging. Do you find that your technology is a complement to your life? And have you ever found that you needed to practice different tools to get better balance. It sounds like you've got a pretty balanced relationship with technology, but you know, I think it, I think the technology is a plus to, to my life. I think that, you know, I don't, we don't go so far. We have a rule, no phones at the table, whether we're in a restaurant or we're sitting at the dining room table as a family. And so, you know, we, we don't do that. In fact, uh, the, sometimes the only time we could get reception was when we would be at a table when we were in Yosemite. So we made the agreement that we could have our phones at the table because we were together for four straight days. But usually it's a no phones at the table rule. So we've, we've implemented some parameters around it. I will tell you that, you know, I've taught people how to, how to network and build connections for years. And I've had pushback after pushback from people because I had a rule early on, going back to the early days of LinkedIn and Facebook, I had a rule that I didn't link to people 
who I hadn't had a cup of coffee, a meal, or a beer with. And all of these technology gurus who were out there teaching social media eight years ago would mock me if we spoke at the same conference or if they'd read something I'd said, they'd, they'd blast me on, on Facebook saying, you don't understand, you're leaving behind all these opportunities. You have to link to everybody in your industry who breathes air and has red blood because that's the way the world is going. And it's so funny because most of those same people have adopted their own version. They don't call it the coffee meal or beer rule because that would be admitting maybe that other people might have been right. But they've invented that, oh, you shouldn't link to people who there's no reason to be. And the, the, the pendulum of the people who teach social media has swung to what I've been saying for 10 years. And that is, you can link to anybody you want, but, but have a set of rules. So mine are, I want to have a cup of coffee, a meal, or a beer with somebody. I call it the coffee meal or beer rule. And yet, I break that rule all the time if there's a legitimate reason. Maybe maybe somebody, uh, we've been following each other on on you know, Twitter or something for a long time. And I feel like I know who they are. We kind of, you know, get to know each other. Or if a meeting planner or an HR director was to send me a LinkedIn or a Facebook request, I I accept it. Do you know why? Because I'm not stupid. I mean, that's who hires me. If that's the way they want to reach out to me, great. But I typically don't spam strangers with connect with me, connect with me, because what I have discovered is how doesn't matter how much technology we have, strangers rarely wake up in the middle of the night and send opportunity to strangers. I have a new question I ask audiences, and I ask for people who are over 35 years old, because if you're younger, you don't necessarily remember. And that's not a judgment. It's just the reality. But for people who are over 35 years old, I say we've had social media in some format for over a decade, 10 or 12 years. We've had the smartphone for over 10 now. How many people feel like they have more friends? And I mean like friends like come to my house for Thanksgiving and bring all your kids. Or, you know, I'm having a really depressed day. Someone has to meet me for a beer tonight. Yes, I will drop everything and come meet you. That level of friend or level of business associate where people refer the crap out of you. Like you're getting so much business from them. You're going, oh, stop. I can't even service it. How many people that have more social or business friends at that level than they did a decade ago? And it's rare that a hand goes up. Now, every now and then there's, there's an exception. There's outliers to everything. But in a room of a thousand people, I had no hands. And I said, wait a minute, most people in this room are over 35. I mean it, raise your hand. Nobody raised their hand. And then one woman put her hand up like halfway going, I'm not sure if that thing of Thanksgiving is the right definition, but you know, uh, maybe like a birthday party. And I'm like, nope, Thanksgiving, that's the definition. And she said, no, I don't have more friends than I did 10 years ago. And I'm not dissing social media for that. I'm just saying a lot of people thought, oh, this is, I don't ever have to go to a networking event again. You know, I'm going to be so popular because I can click. And the truth is, is there are outliers. There are people who've built entire businesses with business partners who've never been in the same room. I understand it. But for most of us, the technology hasn't brought us huge amounts of business unless you're a great marketer or hasn't brought us more real friendships and relationships, which means, doesn't mean we throw these tools out. It means we quit pretending they're magical. Amen to that. And and I was definitely of the same school of thought in terms of how to connect or who to connect with. And, you know, when I was teaching social strategy all those years ago, and uh, it's kind of interesting that you bring that up because there's sort of, I, I think a lot of people are starting to take sort of the Facebook strategy into LinkedIn now, and it's kind of scary. Um, and even in Facebook, I mean, for me, I'm not going to connect with someone on Facebook unless it's 
someone that I think is going to really care about the fact that I post a picture of my kids. You know, if they're annoyed that I'm posting pictures of my children, then they shouldn't be connected to me on Facebook. Well, yeah. And that's why I say the coffee meal or beer rule. If you sit down with me and we have a talk for an hour, the odds are a year from now, when I see your name, I'm going to remember you like, like this conversation we're having. I'm going to remember being on your podcast because it's an experience. Exactly. Whereas, you know, I, I just delete all these, you know, pet shop owners in Topeka or whatever who send me the links because I don't understand why. Now, if there's a why, let's have a conversation. And the best story I can give you is, is that there was this guy, he's somewhat famous, like you'd know who he was if I told you his name. He comes from an even more famous family. You would definitely know his family. Lives in the same town I did. And I got a Facebook friend request from him and my ego took over. And this was years ago. This is like eight years ago. I thought maybe he read one of my books. Maybe he saw me speak at a conference because the industry he was in at the time I, I did work in. Maybe he saw me at a conference. And so I wrote back saying, oh, thanks for the friend request on Facebook. Hey, I have this kind of coffee meal or beer rule. But he worked for a law firm who I knew. And I was in their building. My biggest client was in their building. And I'm like, I'm there every other week. So why don't we meet at Starbucks and have a cup of coffee one time when I'm there? His assistant wrote back and told me, he's not looking to meet you for coffee. He's compiling a list for a political run down the line. You... That's really sad. You is the response that everybody gives me. And by the way, he has won a public office since then. Uh, I didn't vote for him. But uh, yeah, but that's the whole thing is, is that social media, the key word in it is social. It's got to be a two-way street. It's not, I want to be connected to you so I can spam the crap out of you later. Absolutely. And I think that there's so much to that, that people need to get that message and know who you're communicating with on the different platforms and that they're very different. And yeah, don't post your burrito on LinkedIn. Don't post your burrito on LinkedIn. And don't, if you're going to invite someone to connect on LinkedIn, give them the context. Because that's another piece that you come back from events, you got a stack of business cards. And I don't know how many times, particularly when there's like an expo center, that my business cards have been mixed together between the ones that I took information, you know, for an information thing, like they had an interesting product, got mixed in with, you know, the business cards from people that I've had conversations with. Well, I take notes on the back of the cards. That's the only way that I can remember, you know, I want to make sure there's context there. So if I send someone an invitation, unless it was like within 24 hours so that they remember the conversation we had, you have to provide that context. And I think that some people really forget that it's about, particularly in LinkedIn, it's about being able to, if somebody looks at my network of connections and says, you know, someone that I know, and they said, can you introduce me to this person? And I have no context as to where that connection came from. How can I make an introduction? Well, and then you're basically saying, no, my, my online network is a fraud. Ah. I don't know that person. I can't help you. That's why at least if I've had coffee, meal or beer, I can say I've only met them once, but I can try or whatever. At least exactly. there's something, you know, there. And so, yeah, I think, I think the problem is, is that people are in our society today are drastically looking for shortcuts. And, you know, it goes back to what we were talking about before about calling yourself a speaker. One of my friends bought an ad in a thing that said like local speakers and it was in like the Austin Business Journal. And I said, oh, I didn't realize you were speaking. And it said like experienced conference speaker. And he goes, well, I spoke once last year. And I go, why would you do that? And he goes, well, I want to look smarter. Well, calling yourself a speaker because you spoke at one conference 
that's a shortcut. Maybe you should speak a few more times before you call your, you know, if you spoke once or twice, you're a person who has spoken. You know, if you're going to lead with that, maybe there should be more context. But everybody is looking for shortcuts to everything, to career success, to connections, to reputation, to brand. And I think when it comes to all this digital stuff that we're talking about, if you take the human out of relationships, you end up with a lot of hollow. And I think after 10 years of this, there's a lot of people, including people who taught social strategy for a long time, who are feeling hollow and they're writing about how they're doing a purge. And it's like, well, if you hadn't started linking to everybody who breathed air, you wouldn't have to purge. Absolutely. So, Tom, you're doing a lot of great stuff these days. And I want to make sure that people can find you and understand how they could potentially work with you or hire you to come speak. Can you tell us a little bit about that so that our listeners don't lose you after this? Don't lose me. Don't find lose me. him. So it's really easy to find me. It's going digital. You go to TomSinger.com. That's T-H-O-M-S-I-N-G-E-R.com. You'll find out all the information about my speaking, how I work with companies and associations, things about the cool things entrepreneurs do podcast, also links to social media stuff. Don't try to link into me or Facebook me if we haven't had that coffee meal or beer. And then also my group coaching program, which is really cool because it's still really small. When I say that I don't make any money for anything but speaking, I make like $1.95 from my group coaching program. But it's uh, a handful of people. We call it the Potential Mastermind Project. And it's actually one of the most awesome things I'm doing right now. Very cool. Well, I hope people will follow up and try to find you. And we'll make sure that all of that information goes into the notes because I think that there's so much to be learned from your, your valuable experience. And, and of course, you're just a super fun guy to hang out with. So that's always good, too. So as we're wrapping up, do you have any words of wisdom or magic that you care to share with the audience before we sign off? You know, the only thing that comes to mind is I'm on this crusade to make age 50 to 75 the greatest years of my life. And, and that's, a big, that's a big push because I've had a pretty good life. You know, I, I was kind of a party kid up until about 25 or 30. And then, uh, you know, I've raised kids the rest of the time. My daughter said, wait a minute, what about 30 to 50? I go, I was raising you. That was hard. So I, I look at 50 to 75. Sometimes people say, well, what about after 75? I'm like, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But for now, I'm two years into this, this proclamation. And what I've found is it's just a big mindset thing. And it's all about trying to find ways to say yes more often. So I've done things like I jumped off the 108th floor of the stratosphere on their sky jump that they have. Wow. And uh, I did a TEDx talk with three weeks notice because they, I guess somebody had backed out and they were looking for somebody. And I said, yeah, I could write a whole speech in three weeks. Ah, this is going to be videoed and put on the internet forever. No problem. I did that. Uh, I, I, I started doing stand-up comedy, something I'd always wanted to do when I was young and was always too scared. And, you know, I went out and I lost 30 pounds and then I, I did this wilderness trip with my daughter and now I want to go do more of that stuff. So my attitude is, is that as I get older, I'm just saying yes. So if you're 50 or older, just make a commitment that you're going to make that the best years of your life. If you're younger, don't wait till you're 50. Start now. Get out of your own head. I love it. What a perfect way to close. And I'm at that 50 mark. So I'm going to say yes to all of that. So go Gen X. Woo. Woohoo, Gen X. So thank you so much for joining us today. This has been super fun and I look forward to hearing more about your pursuits of saying yes over the years. But until then, folks, you can find Tom Singer at TomSinger.com and I hope you'll return back and hear more from us at The Evolving Digital Self. So thank you for joining us today and bye-bye for now. 
Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm.